So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode contains a brief discussion of suicide, so it may not be suitable for all listeners. Good-paying jobs were scarce in small-town Nova Scotia, but Vernon Terrio was a hard worker. I didn't know how to read or write. All I knew how to do was work. Just work, work. You show me how to do something, I do it. So when he got a job as a coal miner in 1992, he was looking forward to the new challenge and to the better pay. But almost immediately, he started to notice the danger signs. One shift in particular stands out. The miner was getting stuck, so one of the supervisors asked me to clean the coal dust. The continuous miner is a giant spinning machine that rips the rock right from the mine face. But so much coal dust was accumulating on the underground road that it would just get stuck. And it was Vernon's job to use a bulldozer to clear out the dust. And then at this point, I was going up to the coal face, dropping the blade, and I was backing up. But then I lift the blade up because I was taking so much of it. Vernon saw a supervisor signal him with a light. And he was telling me, he says, drop it and pull it all back. Get it out quicker. And then when I was doing it, these sparks were coming out of my exhaust and I was getting kind of scared. Here's the thing about coal dust. It's explosive. You do not want sparks going off anywhere near the stuff. I didn't realize what I could have done, but I could have blew the mine up right there. But I was listening to my supervisor to tell me to keep doing it. I was scared, but I didn't know how much scared I was until later on realizing how much danger I was in. That wasn't the last time Vernon felt like there was something wrong at the mine. On May 8th, Vernon decided to pick up an overtime shift so he could make a little more cash. He had just recently had twins, so money was tight. When he got to work, a supervisor instructed him and another miner to take a machine deep into the mine. So me and the other fella, I drove the scoop in, and once I was driving it in, it quit on me. It wasn't working. Me and the other fella went out to the edge of the road, and we had to wait for somebody to come by, and then he got the supervisor, and then the supervisor got a hold of the guys up above, the repair guys, come down and see what was wrong. He brought another scoop down, and what he did is he hooked the chain onto the one in front, and we pulled it out, and the one that we pulled out started right up. Vernon noticed something odd. All of the machines in a coal mine have a methane detector. 
and if the methane level rises to a certain point, the machinery automatically turns off. And there's a good reason for that. Methane, just like coal dust, is incredibly explosive. And when the two of them are mixed together, it becomes a recipe for disaster. But the new machine, the one his supervisor had brought down, the methane detector on it wasn't functioning. It was showing no reading at all. I noticed there was no numbers on it. <laughs> so they must have cut the wires or something on it. But Vernon was just a lowly miner. Who was he to question what his supervisors told him to do? So me and the other father, we continued to do our work. We drove the scoop right in. It didn't quit on us. He parked the scoop, finished his work, and got out of the mine. Vernon was scheduled to work the next day, so he went home to get a good night's sleep. At 5.30 a.m., he got a call. It was his sister-in-law. I got up, answered the phone, and she says, Vern. I said, yeah, yeah, it's me, why? She said, well, they're just wondering if you're home or not, because there's something happening over the mine there. There's a lot of sirens heading over. Vernon figured it was a small cave-in. I said, I'm going into work in the morning and I'll find out what happened, right? He went back to bed and got up a few hours later to drive to work. It was a wet morning. I still can remember that day coming out because May the 9th, the trees are just starting to come out. When he was almost at the mine, Vernon was stopped by the Mounties who had set up a roadblock. And I pulled up and then... He said, where are you heading? I said, I'm heading to work. And he says, you heading to the mine? I said, yeah. He said, well, it blew up this morning at 518. And I went, it just, wow. <laughs> like a brick hit me in the chest, right? Like I couldn't believe it. An explosion had rocked the Westray mine. It was caused by a mix of coal dust and methane. And it was set off by a stray spark. 26 miners had been on shift that night. And now... No one knew if they were dead or alive. And Vernon Terrio was one of the men who would go underground to try to rescue them. The Westray explosion was one of the worst mining disasters in recent Canadian history. But it was far from the first. Westray is a story of managerial malice and the heroism of everyday people. But why is it that workers tolerate such dangerous conditions? And more importantly, why do governments let this happen over and over again at the cost of so many lives? I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. At approximately 5.20 a.m. local time this morning, what appears to be a very significant explosion occurred in the underground operations at the Westray Coal Mine in Plymouth, Pictou County, Nova Scotia. At the time of the explosion, there were 26 employees underground working on the night shift. 
Coal mining has a long, lethal history in Canada, but especially in Nova Scotia. The province is home to some of the world's thickest coal seams and some of the most dangerous mines. The first deadly coal mine accident took place in 1873 in Pictou County, Nova Scotia, not far from where the Westray mine would be built more than a century later. Sixty miners died after a methane explosion ripped through the mine, and for the next hundred years, coal miners were killed by the dozens in rockfalls and blasts. Eighty-eight miners died after an explosion in 1918 in Pictou County. In Spring Hill, over 400 men died underground in three different incidents. And in Cape Breton, more than 1,300 miners died on the job over a 120-year span. But despite the dangers, men kept coming back to the mines because it was one of the few ways to earn a decent living in small-town Nova Scotia. Working people get forced to take enormous risks with their lives to feed their kids. My name's Tom Sanborn. I'm a uh, freelance writer and social justice activist. The geography underneath Pictou County is very tricky and very complicated, and there's an enormous bloody history of mine explosions and deaths right in the area where they got permission to dig the new Westray mine. Tom is the author of Hell's History, a book about the Westray mine disaster and its aftermath, which he wrote in conjunction with the United Steelworkers. Before Westray, the last working coal mine in Pictou County had closed in the 1970s. But politicians and business people still had dreams of bringing coal mining back to the region. They were dazzled by the potential of the Ford Seam, one of the thickest coal seams anywhere in the world. The only problem was that it was rich in methane, making it especially prone to explosions. But local politicians didn't see that as an impediment. By the 1980s, they were lobbying Ottawa for money to have a new mine built in the region. The Westray mine came to be by an incestuous kind of clusterfuck of uh, politicians and, uh, and business people. The collusion between the politicians and the business people gave them permission to mine in an area where they never should have mined. Here's Ron Marks, who was mayor of Stellarton in Pictou County in the 1980s, speaking to the CBC's Fifth Estate. The five mayors within Pictou County and the county warden put a lobby effort together to make a direct uh, pitch in Ottawa. They took their proposal to Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, who had briefly been the MP for Central Nova, the riding that contains Pictou County. As I recall, he was very supportive of our uh, plans to have this locate within Pictou County, and he said he would meet with his... uh, people to see if there's anything that they could do to speed this along. And there were two men central to the effort to make Westray a reality. The first was Clifford Frame. Ah, yes, the ineffably evil Clifford Frame, who uh, had a genius for putting together complicated Rubik's Cubes of nested corporations to keep himself very far from any kind of accountability. Clifford Frame was a mining stock promoter with deep connections to government. He was a key figure in putting the consortium together, getting the money, getting the political support that let the mine open. Here's the CBC's Fifth Estate asking Clifford Frame about his less-than-savory reputation. Well, how do you account for the fact that so many people that know you and and a lot of people who like you in, in the mining business have begun to characterize you as a guy whose chief specialty is getting money out of government people. 
I'd say that's quite a compliment because it must mean that they can't get it. And the other man who helped bring Westray to fruition was Donald Cameron, a local MLA and the Nova Scotian industry minister. Cameron was a huge proponent of coal mining and tied his political fortunes to the opening of a new mine in Pictou County. I can tell you that he's one of the big villains in the eyes of the Westray survivors that I spoke to. The Westray mine was strongly opposed by federal bureaucrats who believed that the project would just be too dangerous. But Cameron lobbied the highest levels of the federal government to get the project approved. A new mine meant a lot of jobs for his constituents, and Cameron did whatever he could to get it off the ground, including providing Donald Frame's company with a $12 million loan without the approval of cabinet. And Cameron aggressively mocked anyone who claimed that the Westray project was politically motivated in any way. Here he is speaking at a rally when he was running to be the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party. So the sleaze bags are out. And they call Fifth Estate and they tell them <coughs> Don Cameron's down here giving contracts out to the coal mine, uh, to friends, and you better come out and check it out. Cameron won that election and became Premier of Nova Scotia. And from his office, he continued to push forward the Westray mine over any and all opposition. The politicians knew about the dangers. The mining executives knew about the dangers. And they did a, uh, a rational market business case analysis and decided it was cheaper to put the mine there and to make quick profits for their company than it was to actually do it safely. But the people of Pictou County were largely in favor of the Westray mine. A new coal mine meant steady, well-paying jobs in an economically depressed part of the province. Despite the dangers, many of the miners that Tom Sanborn spoke to said that they simply needed the work. They told me that they took the risk of losing their lives in order to feed their kids. It's a simple matter of economic squeeze, you know. Unemployment was high. The government said this was the way that they would get jobs that would last for years. And that's exactly the position that Vernon Terrio found himself in when the Westray mine opened in September 1991. He was working at a tire shop at the time, but he was looking for something that paid better. Vernon was a trained welder, and an acquaintance who was a manager at Westray said that the mine had an open position. But Vernon didn't get the job. He said, I'll get a hold of you later, Vernon. He called me later, and he says, listen, Vernon, I got some bad news for you. Phillips hired his brother-in-law. I can't give you the welder job, but what about if you'd be interested in coal mining? And that's when he says, uh, we got 25 years work, and you like the overtime, you'd make 60, 80 grand easy a year. And that's when I went, wow. The bells were just ringing in my head. Jesus, this would be awesome to raise a family, right? Like I wasn't thinking of the uh, bad side of it or anything. I was just thinking of money at the time. Vernon had no experience with coal mining, but his family was growing, so he figured he'd give it a shot. On his first day, he was shown a short safety video. But immediately, Vernon noticed a problem. The video they put up was an open pit, open pit mine. And I kind of just, okay, like, well, I was saying to myself, what's this got to do with underground though, right? Westray was not an open pit mine. After the irrelevant safety video, Vernon and the other new hires were shown how to put on a respirator in case of a gas leak. And... That was the entirety of the safety training that Vernon got. The next day, he was underground. The mine itself had two entrances. 
you had your main tunnel that you went in. And then on the other tunnel was the belt line. That's the one that would take the dirt out and the coal. The two shafts were parallel to one another, and the primary landmarks were the doors that connected them. As you went deeper underground, everything just got colder and more damp. I even uh, had to drive the dozer some nights clear that road. And I see me park the dozer and get in between the, the blade and the um, radiator, try to get warmed up. I see me in there just trying to get warmed up for about five or ten minutes and then hop back on and do the road. And the coal dust was omnipresent. Vernon remembers eating lunch down in the mine. The sandwich, uh, you put your light on it, it, when you take it out of your bag, it's white, but if, if you take your time eating that, it's going to be all black. <laughs> You're eating your sandwich that it's all dusty, right? The dust was really bad. I could see why people got black lung in the mines. The miners would shower upstairs before they left work, but they could never fully get rid of the dust. It was hard getting that off your eyes. Like, it was just caked in your eyes there. You could tell a coal miner by that. Vernon learned the ropes fairly quickly. Some days he'd be cleaning coal dust or driving down supplies or putting up arches to ensure that the ceiling didn't cave in. But it wasn't long before he saw things that disturbed him. Take, for instance, the day Albert McLean, a mining inspector working for the Nova Scotian government, came to visit the mine. That morning, I was working this supply truck, the boom truck we call We had to get supplies up into the guys where they're working. And uh, that morning, Roger gave us the order of getting the supplies up into the southwest area there. The Roger that Vernon's talking about is Roger Perry, the underground mine manager. Uh, The guys were short equipment, and he said we want it down there right away. So we said to him we had a bad time a couple of days before that getting up in there. It was hard getting through the coal. The coal dust or boom truck would get, keep getting stuck. So he just said, well, there's a dozer there. Get the guy with the dozer to push you up and then get the supply up to the guys. They need it, okay? So we just took that order and we went down. They were supposed to use a bulldozer, to push another machine along the road. The potential for sparks was obvious, but they did what they were told. And while they were in the middle of the job, they saw Roger Perry's tractor approaching with somebody sitting next to him. It was the mine inspector, Albert McLean. Roger Perry looked angry. But he pulled up beside us and then he let out one holler. He just said, what the fuck are you guys doing up here with that dozer pushing you guys up here? And we just looked at him like, we didn't say anything. We just looked at him because I don't want to argue with the supervisor or manager. So we, the guy in the dozer turned around and we backed our vehicle out and we, we went up top. They waited there for about an hour until Roger Perry returned. Roger comes in, guys, get that fucking stuff down there and get it up to them quick. Use the dozer. So that's what we did. Now that the inspector was gone, Roger Perry wanted the workers back down in the mine doing the incredibly unsafe thing he had just told them not to do. But that's just how it was at Westray. Here's Tom Sanborn again. None of the people I talked to could remember a single unannounced inspection. 
right? Nod and wink. The management gets a, a phone call that there's going to be an inspector coming tomorrow and they clean up the most obvious offenses. There are some stories I heard about regulators who came and never went underground, just came and were present at the pithead and then went back and wrote a report about how wonderful it was. This is one of the many shameful things about this story. And one of the things that you see repeating over and over again in the history of industrial murder in, in Canada, there's a, a kind of regulatory capture. You know, you have uh, regulators who are more friends with the management than they are with the workers and who have clear signals from their political masters that they don't want stuff slowed down. Let's make some money. Let's let our friends make some money. Let's get enough money into the community that I'll get reelected. Vernon kept seeing more and more safety issues. Alongside the machines that would spark and the coal dust building up, what he worried about most was a cave-in. It seemed like every time we did a shift change, we go up top and then the new crew coming down. Like uh, there was times I was coming down and there was one section of the road was completely caved in. Boy, I'm telling you, that... That kind of scares you. Like that mudslides that you see in BC right now going on. That's what it's like. But just put yourself underground with that little tunnel, just that little road, and that's all caved in. There's no surviving that. As the weeks went by, more and more of the miners in Westray began to worry for their very survival. Some of them wrote out wills. One miner, Carl Guptill, went to a provincial mining inspector and complained about safety violations that led him to being injured. Not only did the inspector not sanction the company, he essentially told management who had complained. Guptill was promptly fired. Vernon tried to see if his job at the tire store was still available. I went over to the tire place and uh, I asked him if I can get my job back. And they said, no, we get the guy hired. And I said, oh, okay, I, I didn't tell them what was going on, but it, in myself, I was getting kind of scared of the cave-ins. But Vernon kept coming back to work. He even picked up overtime shifts. After all, he needed the money. The night before the explosion, Robbie Doyle was getting ready to go underground when he ran into his brother, Alan, who also worked at Westray. And his brother told him that it was weird underground. They were hearing noises, that he was worried. And Alan tried to persuade Robbie to book off, to quit, and not go back underground. And uh, he didn't succeed in doing that. And the last he ever saw of his brother was him going back down underground. At 5.18 a.m. on May 9th, 1992, a spark set the methane that had been building up in the air in the southwest portion of the mine ablaze. That caused the coal dust to explode throughout the mine, sending enormous fireballs up the mine shaft. Alan Doyle was still topside when it all happened. Enormous explosion, the lights all over the county blink on and off. You could hear the explosion across a lot of the county. And um, in that moment, he knew that his brother was dead. He knew that he had not saved him. And like a lot of the people I talked to, he is still deeply traumatized, deeply wounded by that. Still very hard for him to talk about his brother. When Vernon Terrio made it to the mine later that morning, he could see the devastation, even above ground. And when we drove by the mine site there, 
there was a house, a blue house where the, the miners lived in. They rented that. And I can remember seeing the black soot all over this, that house. But they, right away, the mine company had the wash people there with the spray, spraying the house down, getting it cleaned up. Vernon was disturbed that an early focus seemed to be on making the scene look presentable. Vernon, along with the other miners and the families of the men who were below, were escorted to the nearby fire hall. Well, myself, I didn't know what to say to the families at the time. I knew some, but I didn't want to say they'd be all right, or you just didn't know what to say, right? He was talking to some of his colleagues when Gerald Phillips, the mine manager, came in. Phillips comes over and asks if any of the uh, day shift want to volunteer to go down underground. And uh, I didn't even put my hand up. My hand went up automatically. I, I don't even remember it going up. It just, it went up. It was just like somebody grabbed it and put it up. But before he went down, he wanted to talk to his wife. We were waiting to go underground, and I just got on the phone real quick, and I called her. And when I called her, she said, where are you at? And I said, well, I'm going underground. She said, no, the fuck, you're not going underground. It's going to blow again. It's going to blow. They're saying on TV. His wife's uncle also worked at the mine. And he worked in the coal mines for a while. I said, well, your uncle's going down underground. And she said, what the fuck you think he is, God? He's not going to save you. <laughs> I just said, uh, I said, I got to do it. I said, I got to go underground. They would do it for me, and I'm doing it for my brothers. Vernon and the other miners went down the shaft, and what he saw shook him. There was just hell. I knew what hell looked like. That's the best way to explain it. He could see pieces of shattered equipment strewn about, jagged rocks filled up the road down into the mine, and everything was covered in a thick black layer of coal dust. When there's a major accident at a mine, trained miners known as Dragermen are the first ones in. They have specialized breathing equipment and other tools, but Vernon and the other miners from Westray went underground without any of that. Their first job was to clear the road and to stabilize the mine shaft. It was slow, exhausting work. It wasn't just like a house fire. You're on one floor. You had to go down a mile. Their goal was to get to the number 10 crossway, where the mine splits off into two branches. From there, they could set up a base camp and try to rescue the men, all of whom were believed to be in the deepest parts of the mine. It took them a full day just to reach number 10. After 24 hours of working, Vernon needed rest. I just went home, hugged my kids and my family, and then I just, uh, I went to bed. But I tried to sleep, but 20 minutes later, I was up and gone back over. I was back over to the mine site for five days straight, buddy. No sleep. I still wonder how a body does that. But on the third day, they began to find the bodies. This was no longer a rescue mission. It was clear that all 26 of the miners were dead. Now, it was Vernon and the other miners' jobs to recover the bodies of their friends and colleagues. Larry Bell was one of the bodies in the bag. Me and Larry, we played hockey in the same team. We were both on different shifts. 
So he'd be working and I'd be playing hockey. He'd come over to the rink and he'd be sitting across from me. And I kind of, we kind of had an eye contact of, was there any cave-ins or everything okay? Kind of like go with your head, kind of nod or whatever. And then he kind of nodded his head, everything was okay, right? But now, Larry was dead, lying in a body bag next to Vern as the miners continued their grisly work. Vernon thought about Roy Feltmate, another one of the men who had been working when Westray exploded. Both of them were stock car racers. Roy's daughter was at the same school my daughter was, and we were at the Christmas concert, and I was telling them that I was just getting hired on, and I did. I got hired on the next day or something like that. And and then we were kind of joking, who's going to get the sponsor? Because we both raced down Riverside. And I said, I'm going to try for the sponsor, buddy. I know them. You know, I know a couple of those guys, and I'm going to see if I get a sponsor out of them. And he said, well, I've been there longer than you've been, so maybe I'll get it. So <laughs> nice guy, really nice guy. Friendly giant, I always called him. For five days, the Dragerman and the Bareface miners kept going down and pulling out bodies. But it was getting more dangerous. They would crawl through a hole. It'd be burning. It, it just seemed like they get dig them through one hole of the cave-in, and there'd be a fire, and there'd be just another big wall. They had to... It was just too much and the decision came to just shut it down it was heartbreaking I'll never forget that like it's hard to explain what I felt like I felt lost they had been able to recover the bodies of 15 of the miners they had to to reconcile themselves to the depth of the mine being the the last resting place of the 11 workers that they couldn't get out. Westray was the deadliest mining disaster in Canada since the 1950s. And it wasn't long before the appalling safety practices in the mine started coming to light. That mine had not been open a year when it blew up and killed 26 miners. They might as well have gone down into the pit and shot them with a gun. They killed them. If you wanted to set up a protocol to guarantee that you'd kill miners, you would do exactly what happened at Westray. You would allow the company to move its excavations out of the permitted area into more unstable geography. You would have worked people long, grueling hours so that their attention was worn down by fatigue. You would fail to ventilate the mine properly or to... Uh, tamp the coal dust down with stone dust. And um, you would create a culture within the workforce where people knew that if they complained or raised issues about safety, they'd be fired. It would have been a miracle for that mine to stay open for a year without a major disaster like this. Not the 15 years of guaranteed work that people were had dangled in front of them as an incentive. But according to the provincial inspectors, Westray had a sterling safety record. One of the bitter, bitter ironies in this is that shortly before the Westray mine exploded, it was provided with a, uh, an industry award as a safety champion. The miner who they sent to the awards ceremony to accept this award was one of the men who died in the explosion a few months later. 
Once the rescue effort had been called off, the RCMP began to investigate, and the Nova Scotian government launched a public inquiry into the disaster. Shockingly, some of the politicians and the managers tied to Westray wanted the mine to reopen. Here's Ron Marks, the former mayor of Stellarton, who had pushed for the mine to be approved, talking to the CBC. Certainly this was a a tragedy, and it has affected everyone in, in Pictou County. But we look at the uh, Challenger disaster, and they still go into space. And we look at the Titanic, and people still go to sea. I think the mine still has a lot of potential, and I would encourage who's ever in, in those positions of power to try to put the mine back into uh, service again. Gerald Phillips, the mine manager, told the Dragerman that, quote, what's done is done, and urged them to write a letter asking for the mine to reopen. Vernon Terrio remembers seeing Roger Perry, the underground manager, while the rescue attempts were ongoing. We were down number 10 crosscut, and he just said to, the, said to everybody, he says, we'll get this all mucked up and cleaned up, and then we'll get back to work. Like, no heart at all in the son of a bitch. And he's lucky he didn't get a punch in the face that day. And right off the bat, no one was willing to take responsibility for what had happened. The company did what most companies do in this kind of a situation. They blamed the workers. They lied about their safety record. They made the usual sanctimonious statement that companies always do. We mourn for the loss of these workers. Safety is very important to us. It's, it's job number one in the mine. Apparently not. Clifford Frame, the company founder, deflected blame. And like some of the other uh, representatives of his company, he did his best to blame the workers. Oh, you know, the accident happened because they were being careless. It wasn't anything management did. It was just bad, stupid workers who did something bad, which was experienced by the Westray survivors that I talked to as an enormous insult to the men that they loved who had died in that mine. Premier Donald Cameron, who had done everything he could to get Westray approved, now washed his hands of it. So did his labor minister, Leroy Leger. At this time, I feel no personal responsibility. I certainly feel a, a sense of grief, uh, a sense of questions of, to be answered. Uh, I, I'm certain to, to a point that we've carried out in the department the best procedures that we could. Company lawyers succeeded in delaying the public inquiry for years. In the meantime, Westray Cole and four Westray managers were charged under the Occupational Health and Safety Act, but those charges were quickly dropped. Two of the mine managers, Roger Perry and Gerald Phillips, were then charged with 26 counts of manslaughter and negligence causing death. But the charges were stayed by a judge because the Crown failed to disclose evidence they had on the two men. After a number of unsuccessful appeals, all charges were dropped against Perry and Phillips. Eventually, the public inquiry was allowed to go forward, but neither Clifford Frame nor the company president, Marvin Pelly, showed up to testify at the inquiry. They took a a reasoned position under the guidance of their lawyers that it might be dangerous for them to go and tell the truth to the inquiry, and so they just declined to come. They were out of province, didn't have to. Don't have to, don't want to. Busy setting up more fortunes somewhere else. They simply defied the court and or the the judge in the inquiry and uh, got off scot-free. 
many people in Pictou County were distrustful of the inquiry process. Frankly, the people in the mining community, the workers as opposed to managers, were not expecting much out of the inquiry. Justice Richard was an establishment figure, a very prominent jurist, somebody who was likely to be more comfortable socially with management than he would be with workers. So everybody was braced for a whitewash. But when he released his report on December 1st, 1997, Justice Richard did not mince words. The tale that unfolds in the ensuing narrative is the Westray story. It is a story of incompetence, of mismanagement, of bureaucratic bungling, of deceit, of ruthlessness, of cover-up, of apathy, of expediency, and of cynical indifference. Indeed, management at Westray displayed a certain disdain for safety and appeared to regard the safety-conscious workers as the wimps in the organization. To its discredit, the management at Westray, through either incompetence or ignorance, lost sight of the basic tenet of coal mining, that safe mining is good business. In the end, he came down with a scathing report. He did not whitewash, he did not excuse. He was scathing about the failures of regulation. He talked about the fact that they were allowed to extend the mine into even more dangerous geography. And he called for new law. He called for a law that would make it possible to make criminal charges against companies and against company uh, executives who made these kind of decisions. So when the results of his inquiry were announced, uh, there was an explosion of joy. And when he clearly laid the blame on management and government and regulators, and he clearly called for a more robust law that would allow some accountability for these guys. Everybody was very delighted and very surprised. But as all the investigations and inquiries were taking place, Vernon Terrio's life was falling apart. The nightmares started almost immediately. I had the same nightmare for the longest time, um, sitting in the tunnel sitting on that dozer and the ball of fire coming at me. And I'd scream, waking up, screaming. And then I wouldn't get back to sleep up all night. Things got worse with time. One night, I had my uh, hands around my wife's throat, choking her. She she woke up. She got me wake up. I woke up. But then a couple weeks later... Another night, same thing happened. But this time, when I came through, she was coughing. I almost killed her. Vernon didn't know it at the time, but he was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. In the years after, Vernon was incapable of working and struggled through the workers' compensation bureaucracy. They placed him into programs designed to get him back into the workforce, but Vernon was illiterate. He struggled through classes, but without much success. The nightmares I have, in, and then trying to do my schoolwork and trying to keep a house going, uh, it was just chaos. I'm telling you, I was so frustrated with them. I, I wanted to take my own life a few times. There was times that I just, life's not worth living. But then I thought about my kids. 
I, I can't do this to my kids. Vernon and the other miners involved with the rescue effort were all awarded the Medal of Bravery by the Governor General. But life didn't get much easier for him for years. By May of 1997, he was able to get an old job that he had as a welder working for a rail car manufacturer. It was there that Vernon got involved with the United Steelworkers. The steelworkers had tried to unionize the workers at Westray before the explosion. And while they had finally got enough signatures to unionize the mine a few weeks before the disaster, the union was never formally certified. But the steelworkers took up the cause of the miners regardless. The Steelworkers Union deserves a tremendous amount of credit in this. Despite the fact that they'd never gotten a dollar in dues from any of these guys, despite the fact that they weren't formally certified, they took responsibility for this and they provided an enormous amount of personal support for the survivors. One day in 1999, Vernon was invited to go to a steelworkers conference in Ottawa. And it was there that some of his colleagues discovered that he had been a miner at Westray. At the time, the union was trying to get a new law passed that could hold companies and managers criminally responsible for the death of workers. And the steelworkers asked Vernon if he could help them. And for the next few years, Vernon became a tireless advocate for the bill. It was very, very, very important to me, to my heart, to do the job that I was doing. For the first week, that's all I could think about was the 26th. But the following week, I started reaching out. This is not just for the 26 guys. This is for Canada, for all workers. I realized that I was doing something bigger than I first thought I was putting my shoes into. For a kid that couldn't read or write, but I had a story that I lived, and I wanted everybody to know. And even in the face of that heart-scaldingly beautiful and eloquent testimony, it took years before the act was finally passed. Finally, in 2003, on their fifth attempt, the Westray bill looked like it was about to be passed. Vernon was in the Senate chambers as they proceeded through the final reading. We started clapping, and then the guard came over and said, whoa, 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 you guys are not allowed to clap in here. I'm telling you... uh, when I heard that being read off, um, the, the motions were great. It was a turning part in my life that uh, I fought for, fought hard, and uh, I didn't want to celebrate until it was final, though. Vernon was there the day the bill received royal assent. And we were there to witness it, and it was a great piece of history to be involved in. The senators knew meant so much to me that one of them come over and gave me the bill. And I took that bill and I ran through the, the halls just saying, there guys, 26th, it's for you guys. Westray explosion was a disaster. It was a tragedy, but it was not an accident. It was a genuine result of systemic structures that put profit over people. And 
profit over safety. But in the years since the Westray Act was passed, it's barely been used, despite the fact that thousands of workers have died on the job during that time. We're uh, 17 years now since it was passed, and you can count on three hands the numbers of times that charges have been laid under this act. And on one hand, people who actually went to jail. This may be one of the most under-enforced laws in Canadian history. Canadian workers are dying every year because management made decisions that it was cheaper to let them die. Working people still go into dangerous situations every day because they need to make a living. And all too often, politicians and business people keep them in danger for the sake of a quick profit. And even when workers die, the vast majority of the people responsible get off with nothing more than a fine. That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please support us. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com and leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Vernon Terrio, Marjorie Cody, Tom Sanborn, the CBC's Fifth Estate, and many, many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at commonspod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Demi Lola Oname. This is Demi Lola's last episode working on Commons, and I just wanted to say what an invaluable member of our team she's been, and we wish her the best on what's coming next. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes, or go to commonspodcast.com. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer.